Welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today, I am your host, Crystal Fleming, and uh, this will be our first week in November. So, well done, guys, for getting to November. Today, we've got, I think, one of the most amazing minds that I could possibly introduce you to. He's going to take us on a ride, such an educational ride, that I cannot wait to I just cannot wait to get him on and for you guys to all meet him. He is going to change our look on the world and on life in general, I think, with his amazing words. So before we get into talking with this wonderful man, I would like to do our little advert. This is for the Time Guardian series, book four by Marianne Curley. And it's called The Shadow. The battle is over, the war is won, the prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan. Struggling to cope with tragic loss, at odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping at shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle swears revenge and vilify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an impossible choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation? Who continues to pull her from the grave as the guard and the order battle through the past and into an impossible future? Darkness lurks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that the prince Price of Freedom by Rosemary Rao, the Roman British crime series, has got part of its royalties being donated to the Ukraine crisis. And also her agent has donated her commission. So if you have a few pound coins, please make sure that you, you come over and pick up the book, The Price of Freedom, and help those who are struggling in Ukraine today. Now I'm going to welcome this man who I exceedingly admire and uh, wish I'd known him when I was younger and uh, definitely wish I had somebody who could have taught me as well as he's teaching the world now. Please welcome Philip Ball. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Crystal. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Well, I got to say, I hardly ever had the opportunity to talk to someone who kind of dives into topics that I would never really kind of gone into thinking about further than a textbook or what I learned in school and I I find it refreshing to meet an everyday sort of individual who can have a conversation and who writes science in a way that people can understand it and can kind of understand concepts that necessarily they wouldn't so why don't you tell us about your, your latest book that you've released and why you came to write it and what sort of inspired you to to tell us about, you know, to come up with this idea and to educate us uh, as, a, as a race about this. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> there are 
several books that I've just quite recently released for various reasons. I've been busy, I guess, during the pandemic. Um, the one Which I'll, is good. <laughs> I'll, yeah, well, it is. I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones in that regard. Um, but the book that I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about, at least first of all, is called The Beauty of Chemistry. And this is actually a very image heavy book. And it was one that wasn't my idea. Um, it wasn't in a sense, it wasn't my project. It was uh, it was offered to me. It came it, it really started um, several years back when I, I used to before the pandemic made it impossible. I used to go to China regularly. Um, yeah. And one time I was there, it must have been six or seven years ago now, I would guess. Um, a, uh, a Chinese guy got in touch with me by the name of Yen Liang, um, who I subsequently discovered makes the most fantastic videos of chemical processes. Um, so they're kind oh, of time lapse yeah. videos of crystals forming and um, liquids mixing and things precipitating. And they just look gorgeous. They just look beautiful. He has a, a real skill for um, turning chemical processes into a kind of visual art. Um, and yeah. he has a website called Envisioning Chemistry, which is about this. And he now works with an assistant, uh, um, Winting Ju. So the two of them make these, uh, that do these, put these things together. And um, Yen got in touch with me and he is based in Beijing. And he said, um, I'd like to have a chat. Um, this is what I do. Can we have a talk about maybe collaborating? And he jumped on, the, I guess, the high speed train, as it is now, from Beijing down to Shanghai, where I was. And we met yeah. up and chat, chatted. And, um, and you know, having seen by that stage his work, I, I said, well, I'd love to collaborate in some ways to, you know, provide words for uh, for anything that you do. Um, and several years Later, he got in touch and he said, look, I've um, arranged to write this book or to, to publish this book with MIT Press. Would you do the words for it? And it'll be a book of our images um, and you'll, you'll provide the text. So I jumped at that chance because I knew that I guess because I knew that because of the the, the wonderful quality of the images that uh, Yen and Wenting were producing, I would feel inspired to talk about chemistry in a a way that would be different from how I might do that in one of my own books, you know, explaining chemical processes, that here I could feel a bit freer about it. So I wanted to say something about what we're seeing in these images, what the processes are and why they look the way they do, and perhaps what their relevance is to the broader world, to chemistry out in the world. Um, but that I would be able to, I imagine, to do that in a way that was a bit more kind of lyrical and having a bit less of an obligation to, yeah. you know, explain that in any detail the science. It was just to give you an idea, give the reader an idea of, of what they were seeing. So that's what we did. And um, it was a joy to, to, to do it, to, you know, be inspired by these images, to, to, uh, to, to create a text that would just kind of place them in context. So that's how, how, how it came about. And it was also a joy to just be involved in something that looks so beautiful, that MIT Press, you know, really did a fantastic job of making sure these yeah. images were printed on, you know, really nice quality paper in, in glorious colour. Um, the book has this lovely, this lovely sort of black paper background, which just brings out the colours so, so much more. 
And it seemed to me to be a real opportunity to do one of the things that actually I've been passionate about ever since my first book, which I published, goodness knows, 1994, I'm afraid it was, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was also about chemistry. I trained as a chemist. My first degree was in chemistry. And I've always felt that right. chemistry gets a raw deal when we talk about science. It's the science it that does, people, yeah. Yeah, people don't really know quite how to talk about it, how to sell it. It's always had a slightly unappealing Uh, sort of image I suppose in public perception it's you know associated with chemical plants and dirty polluting stuff and I wanted to show people that actually you know the the world around us is chemical that these processes are happening all around us that there's a wonder and beauty out there in the chemical world yeah and I think you really do achieve that with this novel and I mean there's got to be a lot of people who are going to pick up this book and necessarily maybe a teenager might pick it up by accident in Waterstones and flick through it and be like, you know, and it might change a lot of minds and it might open up that kind of conversation about chemistry in a different way. And I think what you've done is exceptional. And I, I really look forward to seeing how it's embraced by our society and our, and our readers out there. Well, I obviously would love that to happen. Um, and, I, you know, I think that, I th- that, that approaching it visually this way perhaps gives the, uh, creates the opportunity to open up a window on chemistry that people aren't always aware of, that people don't always see. But what I say in the book and what I've always said about chemistry is that not just visually, but in terms of our other senses too. Chemistry is the most sensual of the sciences. Um, I yeah, mean, obviously there are the smells as well, good and bad, but they are certainly evocative and they're still evocative, you know, to me. They take me back to my days, you know, as an undergraduate in the chemistry labs. Um, and there are the the textures, there's the, um, you know, even the glassware of chemistry is a thing of beauty if you, you know, have the right yeah, eye it for it. Um, so I, I, I really think that that's what I wanted to open up, that it's, you know, rather than seeing sort of ball and stick molecular diagrams, which we, we need sometimes to talk about chemistry, but rather than that, we're actually seeing, you know, the, the, the stuff itself, the stuff that you see in a chemical laboratory, but displayed to you in a way that probably you've never seen it before. Yeah, and I think it's inspiring to see that, you know, there's someone like you who wants to make chemistry not, and, and I know this is awful, but I'm 33 years old. And when I used to think of chemistry, I used to think of a stuffy textbook, you know, being stuck in class and, and struggling to understand it and feeling like maybe the teacher doesn't quite understand how to explain it to everybody. Um, so, yeah, and I'm I'm seeing a change in particularly the younger, because I worked in the school for a while, there is a lot of writers who are using chemistry in their novels and it is inspiring kids to look at it more and and be more open to that science and that subject and making them less think, oh, that's, you know, some stuffy idea and making it more interesting and appealing. And I think science has gotten a really big boost with sort of like the Big Bang series as well coming out has kind of increased the interest there for all of you to sort of be able to have a bigger platform to promote your 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 sort of topics and your your novels. 
Well, I, I think it's changed a lot the way we talk about science over the past, yeah. certainly over the past 20 years and changed very much for the better. Um, you know, in the UK in particular, they, 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 if we go back 20, 30 years ago, when I kind of started writing about science, um, there was very much a sense that um, the public are too ignorant about science and we must tell them about it. We must fill them up with science. And it was this was the kind of attitude of what was then called the public understanding of science. And it was predicated yeah. on the idea that there's there was a kind of a void that needed to be filled with science. And I think over the <laughs> yeah. over the decades, that's kind of changed. And people have realized, no, that's not the way to do it. And it's not the way to do it for someone to stand up on the lectern and just tell people about science and, you know, imagine that they're yeah. going to just imbibe it all and then agree with it, you know all the points of view that scientists scientists have i think what's happening now is that you see all kinds of new ways of engaging in science and you know i mean big bang theory is certainly one i think the um uh, uh brian cox and robin ince's infinite monkey cage is another that, that it's yep. you can you can approach science as a kind of entertainment um, in a good way, uh, you know, and at the same time, get a lot of science yes. across and encourage an enthusiasm for science. So take away this stuffy image of lecterns and, you know, to be frank, old white men <laughs> telling you about it and do something <laughs> different. And I think that's yeah. fantastic that that has happened. And I think we're also seeing kind of, particularly for young girls, we're seeing a lot more female scientists in the media. We're seeing a sort of better representation so that's also helping bring better, I would say, better attention to chemistry and yourself and the work that you're doing as a science writer, because it's opening that door and it's making girls feel like it's not an impossible place to go. And I think that's really good. I know, particularly for me, when, when it came to science, girls were encouraged to do biology and the boys were encouraged to do chemistry. And it was just that was the way of thinking back then. And gosh, we're going back, you know, 15 odd years, maybe 16 odd years ago. But that was the way that, that our school operated and our school worked. And it's good to see that change now where there isn't those barriers as much now and people are being encouraged to try everything. And and it's not just one set kit science for for one yeah. set gender as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, that that is absolutely true. But I think, sadly, we still have quite a way to go to, to improve. Oh, yeah, know, even do, today, yeah. we have these uh, things are still said. I mean, just recently, there was a fuss with the government advisor kind of saying, you know, girls don't like physics, which is utter nonsense. And um, it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but you still have these ideas uh, coming up. So, you you know, you say uh, boys were encouraged to do chemistry. I think it's even worse for physics, you know, that the gender balance there and in certain areas of physics, perhaps more than others, it's terrible, the gender balance. Um, and it is, it, yeah. I think it's, you know, it, the, the, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that is there, not because of anything innate, but because of the legacy we have, that you're not going to yeah. overnight change, you know, that, that, that there are still barriers for women in science of all sorts to, you know, really advance. Mm -hmm. their careers um there is still a perception of uh, uh uh that that you're perhaps not you don't really belong there you're not really welcome there that still you know female scientists yeah. say this again and again that they have that sense and that you know so often in an area like physics they're the only woman 
in the room, just as um, you hear uh, um, uh, students of colour and uh, academics of colour saying, you know, they're, they're the only black person in the room. So yeah. there are st- yeah. there's still an awful lot of work to be done in, in the sciences. I'm glad that it's happening, but it's, you know, we, we absolutely mustn't be complacent about it. There's still a lot more that needs changing. Yeah, and I mean, I I will never forget um, going into physics and rather than it being a very open atmosphere, our teacher sort of stood up and he read a list of all the students that wouldn't be able to handle the mathematics of it. And... It, that was embarrassing to me because I was on that list. I was I was second from the top, and you know it was done by by a uh, last name at the time, and I just felt very embarrassed that we weren't even allowed to see this, you know, physics um, display or a, you know demonstration because they didn't think we were smart enough to understand it, um, and I think there's certain attitudes with teachers that needs to change, you know, just because a student's got dyslexia doesn't necessarily mean that they won't thrive in areas of science, that they should be, you know, coddled into what they call safer areas of science. I think that is an attitude that we, we as a society need to tackle as well. Absolutely. I mean, what a terribly sad and awful thing to hear that your teacher did that. I mean, that that just sounds appalling, but it does make me think also, and I've just been actually writing about it today, um, about how if as a a, a female student or a black student or or a minority group of any sort, you go into a scientific um, institution, a university, and you see walls lined with the pictures of the greats of the past, and they're all white men, um, what a message that sends out, you know, that actually you don't belong here, you shouldn't really be here. And there are still people who say, well, these are just, you know, these are just the people who we, we venerate because they're the greats of the past. Sure, you know, what's wrong with having them on the walls but it's really important i think to recognize that that those messages those subliminal messages you know really have an effect on people entering institutions and you know to to the to the um uh in the sense of telling them whether or not they belong here if you like so absolutely that sort of thing has to change and it's it's just not just first um impressions either to be honest because I know people who have maybe been accepted to go to these institutions and then they kind of sit back and when they see other people going and they think, did I just get in because I'm a minority? Did I just get in because I'm disabled? Or did I just get in because I'm from India? Or I'm from... That also needs to change where there... I don't think we should have a box that ticks minorities. I don't think that should be something that universities are looking at. I think it should be a more inclusive attitude of, does this person meet the requirements of the course? Not, what colour are they? Where do they come from? Do they have disabilities? And what are those disabilities? Because that really oppresses people and particularly students that are looking for these great opportunities and these great places to go 
they don't want to feel like they're charity. They absolutely. don't want to feel like they're given yeah. that spot for that reason. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in, in what I, as, as I say, I was writing a piece about these things uh, today. And one of the people who I spoke to, a, a black female academic, uh, formerly at Imperial College, um, was she made the, the very good point that um, she knows when she was in her position that she wasn't a, you know, a sort of token, a diversity appointee. She knows yep. that she was there because she was good enough. But that feeling that, you know, other people are thinking, you know, that's why it is that you're here is is all around. And so that's why it's important to recognise that there are historical reasons why why yep. she was the only person in her department who was, you know, who was black woman. Um, yeah. And we need to understand those reasons. I think that it's very easy for people to, to to kind of think somehow we're starting from a neutral position. You know, science is open. It's open to everyone. What's the problem? But there are very clear historical reasons going way back that have always made it harder, you know, for someone like her to get into an institu institution like that. And it's really yeah. important that those are understood so that people, you know, understand why it is that it's uh, so rare that a, a woman of colour is going to be in an academic, you know, department, in an academic position, in a science department, perhaps particularly. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of seen these children from a learning assistant perspective, and I think being in that role, and I, I kind of recommend this to people, you know, who are writers, to go sometimes away for a portion of time and go into a job where you're working as a learning support assistant or, a, you know what I mean, that gives you a fresh perspective on the world and on life because it allows you to reconnect because sometimes as authors we are isolated because we're always writing and we're always trying to do deadlines and we're always trying to do things. But if we take that time away and we live in a different role, we can learn a lot and take a new or fresher perspective into that environment. And when I was working with these children, I had this this really young, smart girl who was very dyslexic in the terms of writing and note writing. And she said to me, she goes, if I had a scribe that I could take into my class in science, maybe I would be doing better. But she wasn't getting that support because there wasn't the funding there to provide that support. And I thought, I wonder what great things she could have done. Because she loved science. She really did love science. And I, it left me wondering, what great things could this girl have done if the government was actually giving the appropriate funding to the appropriate places? Not just handing education a whole bunch of money, but actually stipulating what the funding should be going to and for somebody to be checking that the money's going to those areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, ab absolutely. And you know, you 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 mentioned there. You, you sort of suggested there quite rightly that what this is really about in the end is is actually getting better science. You know that it, yeah. we 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 can be absolutely certain that you're not going to be you're not going to be getting all of the best ideas from a subsection of the demographic. 
that increasing diversity is not just although it's a it's an it's a good enough you know reason for itself that that addresses inequality but actually it's going to give you better science that that seems uh, you know unambiguous so it needs to be that needs to be recognized too yeah and i think by doing podcasts like this and this is a very inclusive podcast i have had disabled authors on i've had new authors on i've had authors that's been on for 30 40 years doing this um and by opening up these conversations and having such a vast amount of different writers on i'm allowing listeners to discover worlds that they wouldn't otherwise get to touch on like you know you you wouldn't a romance reader could be who could secretly love science but doesn't want to be open to that or tell people that but we'll hear your podcast today and we'll feel that kind of pride in our heart or pride in our chest that might make her go after that and might make her feel confident in speaking up and feel confident for going after what she dreams about and things like that and that's why I am desperately trying to include as many different writers and as many different academics on this as I can and as many different walks of life because I think as a society if we don't have these big open platforms we're really losing out we're losing out on this huge universe of ideas and concepts and ways of looking on life that we wouldn't otherwise yeah about. yeah we yeah absolutely know. yep I so it's totally truly agree. an honor to have you here today oh, thank you <laughs> I know I know it's a it's a bit different with the stuff, the stuff I normally talk about, but it is it's such a pleasure to have you. And and I just admire what you've been able to do. And, and that book is so pretty. And to be honest with you, I was just, I was, I'm not somebody that has a huge level of understanding of science, but it made me a little bit excited about science. And I haven't looked at a science book since I was at school. And I was like, oh, this looks really cool. <laughs> I can't wait. You know, my cousin, is a brilliant science. I was like, oh, I have to buy that for him because he'll really get into it. But that's the point: is opening up people's minds and and really expressing themselves. Yeah. You said that you have another book um, that's out. Is that the modern myths, adventures in the machinery of popular imagination? That's right. I have it just here. I just happened to have it here. I didn't have it <laughs> ready to, uh, to to bring to hand. But the, well, at least that is one of them. I have a book coming out, uh, gosh, in about three weeks time, actually, a new one. But this is the one. This is one of the other ones that came out last uh, year. And this actually isn't a science book. Um, it's really about um, a, a, a sort of cultural and literary history. Um, so, yes, it's called The Modern Myths. And it's that's really what he's exploring i'm suggesting in this book that we are that we have modern myths and i mean myths in the classical sense they they serve the same function as the ancient greek myths did or the ancient norse myths or the myths of any culture um we are still producing myths and so i i I look in this book at uh, i ask you know what are they and by modern i mean um, the early from early modern times, as historians put it, so kind of from yeah. the 18th century. So the the earliest one I look at is Robinson Crusoe, um, yes. and I and the latest one I look at um, because I think it takes 
probably half a century or so before we can be sure that a myth is, uh, you know, is established as such. The latest one I look yes. at is Batman. So it goes from Crusoe <laughs> to Batman. And it's looking at, you know, what are the what are the stories that I think have this mythical status? Why those stories? And what are they really about? And I, uh, what I'm suggesting is that, you know, every culture has its myths. And that one of the big functions they serve, uh, that they have served since ancient times, is as kind of vehicles to explore questions that can't be resolved, that we are anxious about, to explore our anxieties, our fears, our dreams as a culture, as a society. Um, they, they, are, they are kind of uh, vessels for doing that. And there's so, there are certain sorts of stories that allow that exploration to happen. And the, the ones that I cover in this book, I think, are all of that nature. And so they include things like Frankenstein, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, Sherlock Holmes, all of these. They're, they're not about, uh, they, they're not moral tales. They don't have no. a, you know, they don't have a particular moral that you can encapsulate. They're ambiguous. They're messy. And for that reason, they become very good vehicles for exploring in this case, in the in the case of these stories, exploring things that we are anxious about or fearful of that are to do with modernity, with living in yeah. the modern world. I mean, the modern world since um, kind of imperial times, really, since, uh, you of know, course, the yeah. 18th century. Um, and all of these, I think, are, are um, anxieties that didn't exist in the ancient world. And quite a few of them have to do with the ambiguities and the uncertainties that science and technology have brought up. And so there, uh, you know, there are absolutely uh, aspects of the book that look at the history of science and technology over these times and how these fed in. I mean, Frankenstein in particular. Um, but, you know, I think in, in general, they are sort of dilemmas of modernity. And, uh, and, and that's what these stories help us to explore. I really like that because if you look at how technology and so how society was changing, you can also see how crime changed and you can see how that became a huge anxiety for people because there was the, the rise of the serial killer. There was the rise of all these awful, awful things. Um, and then, of course, science at some point got blamed for some of the awful things, you know, with certain bombs and things like that. I... I love the idea of diving into that. And I don't know if it's because I was forced to read Frankenstein for my second year of open uni. Um, <laughs> but I kind of like the idea that somebody's going to kind of, you know, dive into that and really sort of explore all that. So what what drew you to write that? Why, why did you feel a need to write that book? Uh, well, it, it, it absolutely is the case that I felt a need to write it. Um, I mean, actually, that's often the case with, with the books I write. It's not that I'm looking around for a subject and I think, oh, maybe that would be interesting. It's actually that I sort of feel this is a book I have to write. And this is absolutely the case with this one. And the reason for that, I think, at least in part, was that some of these myths I just found in Frankenstein in particular, I found coming up again and again in talking about the social context of science. So, for example, I wrote a book way back uh, over 10 years ago called Unnatural, which was looking at the, the, the at what that word means, what it's meant culturally. What do we mean when we call something unnatural? And um 
it's something that's often uh, used now to talk about, for example, new advances in assisted reproduction. So going back to yeah. sort of I, the early days of IVF and embryo yep. research, um, every time, you know, a new step forward is, is taken, and IVF was a classic example of this, at first it's received as something unnatural. And you know, yes. what, so what does that mean? And it's no coincidence that often then the headlines start talking about Frankenstein. They mentioned, you know, this, these sound like yeah. Frankenstein experiments. It was the same with um, when when genetic engineering started coming in. You yep. know, we had Franken foods and so on. And so I, I kind of thought um, in that book, I thought, well, what's going on there? You know, scientists often just get very frustrated and, you know, throw up their hands in despair and say, why do we keep having, why are we always compared to Dr. Yeah. You know, Frankenstein? Um, yeah. uh, whereas I wanted to say, well, you know, OK, it's fair enough to complain about that. And I understand your frustration, but actually we need to get underneath this. We need to understand what's going on here. What is it about Frankenstein that seems to be able to serve that role of um you know being a vehicle for for the fears that these advances bring up so let's yeah. have a look at that and um so that was that was certainly what i did with um uh, you know that 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 frankenstein seemed to keep coming up i wrote another book uh, about invisibility as a cultural idea going back to going back to plato actually where we sort of first hear about a ring of invisibility and going all the way through to the modern science of something called metamaterials which are used to make a kind of invisibility shield you can make things kind of invisible by surrounding yeah. them with metamaterials and um i thought it was kind of interesting that scientists were using this really a mythical idea a magical idea of invisibility yeah. to explain what they were doing and what i wanted to say in that book was you know actually this is a more complicated idea than you think you think you're just yeah. saying look we're making things disappear and you you know so you you can't see them but actually i i said in the book invisibility has always had associated with it uh, negative aspects that it's uh, you know people fear yeah. Um, what that might give you. And in particular, they fear that if if we had this power of invisibility, it would corrupt us. That is what yes. Plato talked about. And that is what H.G. Wells talked about in The Invisible Man. So again, I, I wanted to open up the kind of mythical underpinnings of you know the metaphors that scientists use. And so I think having sort of seen this happen in, in contextualizing science, I, I, I think I, I, I sort of figured, actually, there's something going on here with these stories that we use. Um, what is it? What is it about these stories that makes us do that? So it was really sort of a, a, as a, an outcome of yeah. looking at the roles of science and technology as they are perceived in society that made me realize we have these stories that speak to mm -hmm. that. So let's open yeah. them up. And I, I kind of hope that we keep opening our minds up because things like stem cells and stem cell treatment, I know a lot of people feel that's against the religions and stuff, but that is future medicine, that's future technology and future science that could save a lot of lives. And I think we need to kind of keep our minds open to that. And I think when everyone was talking about the COVID vaccine and how you know, they thought this was going to alter our DNA, this, you know, idea or concept that, that that was what this vaccine would do. There was that, you know, element of fear. And I think you really touch on that with this book because 
every time something new comes out of science and particularly out of technology, we seem to fear it a little bit. And then when we get used to that idea, it's okay. But I think if we can find a way to be open about it and investigate it and then make up our own minds as a society rather than just jump into the anxiety of it, we might have a better acceptance and we might actually find more things that they work for us and rather than being closed off to it i yeah i that's really what i what i wanted to say and um you know f- with things like embryo research and stem cell research what i wanted to sort of say about that is um look we're, we're still falling back on these old fears and i think that part of the reason for that i'm not saying you know it, it can get in the way it can be obstructive and it can inhibit potentially very useful science but i think the way to deal with that is not just to shout at people stop being so superstitious stop being so su- stupid actually this science yeah. is going to help you is actually to uh, you know understand where those fears are coming from and why they are expressed in these same ways yes. why they are expressed in these you know frankenstein tropes to understand what that fear is really about i i, I think the pandemic the covid pandemic has been so interesting and so revealing in that respect you know yes. I, I mean obviously awful in so many ways but also very very revealing um that the you know the 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 conspiracy theories that arose out of it were yeah. were I don't want I don't even want to say medieval because medieval makes it you know it, it's often used as a pejorative term actually I think the Middle Ages had a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff going on but medieval yeah. in the sense that it's the kind of thing that was talked about there as you know except that then yeah. it was demons in the air invisible demons um, and yes. it was it, it was the same thing but reinvented, um, you know, in a modern sort of secular context. And I think that's what technology and science actually does. It doesn't banish old superstitions. It creates new 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 clothes for them, actually. um, And, you know, in the case of something like COVID, I think one of the things I explored in my book on on, uh, invisibility was uh, the the fears that that arose when we discovered that there were microbes smaller than the naked eye could see, and then we discovered there were viruses that were even smaller, yeah. and they became the invisible enemy. Uh, so they, yeah. you know, they were feared be, simply because they were invisible. We couldn't see them. We didn't know, you know, what they were up to. And I think that's very much uh, that was very much around with with COVID, not least yeah. because we didn't know how this virus was transmitted. It was invisible. We didn't know where it was, you know, whether we were being exactly. exposed to it. Um, and the the fears around the vaccines um, were uh, very sort of interesting as well. You know, this notion that somehow. Um, may, that maybe COVID was being caused, first of all, by radio masts. You know, that was straight out of the old sort of fears of invisibility yep. that, OK, there's an invisible thing, you know, Wi-Fi or whatever it is, or radio waves that, you know, come, yep. why, you know, maybe that's the maybe that's the problem because we can't see it. And then with the vaccines, what's in there? We can't see what's in there. Maybe it's invisible microchips or something. So I think there's a very strong cultural narrative we have around that that can be very easily tapped into and sometimes was explicitly tapped into for particular agendas and ideologies because it's it's already there. So I think the the pandemic really showed us the the potential dangers of these... Uh, yeah. the, 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 these old ideas, these old cultural ideas that can just keep resurfacing 
whenever we face a new threat. I would agree. And do you, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this train of thought, but when I looked at the reactions to COVID and vaccines and people not being vaccinated against normal things, and I compared it to how, you know, Britain looks at it compared to how America looks at it. I wonder if the education is maybe why there was such a different reaction. Because it came across as there was a much more severe conspiracy theory reaction from the states compared to what we were seeing in the UK. And I I wondered on that, and then I also wondered on why it is that we as a society wanted to instantly blame somebody for the pandemic because instantaneously if you watch the media and the news you know china was to blame right you know they instantly everybody was blaming china oh it's china's fault right so i wonder do you think do you feel like there's a difference between the education levels between some of the countries and that was also something that played a part in how we all dealt with this pandemic and, and how the vaccines were developed and how we approached the science and the sort of technology aspects of that? Well, I think education will have played a part. And I think, um, I mean, I guess really, you know, one has to sort of face the fact that the whole political polarisation uh, does uh, that, that is particularly, of course, strong in the US. We're seeing it in the uh, in the UK as well. But um, you know, in the US, it's 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 so extreme that you know the country is is barely able to to function politically anymore, and it's a really tragic thing to see. And it really know, the, is, yeah. The, the, and the truth is that there is there there are correlations between the polarization that we see and levels of education. Obviously, not complete, but that it is definitely there. So that's part of it. I, I'd be wary of thinking, well, then education is just the fix and we just have to, you know, um, give people better information and educate them better. And then the, all those problems will go away. I don't think it's going to be as simple as that. But I think that that yeah. is absolutely an, an element in that mix. Um, but, you know, it's obviously much more complicated than that and uh, so much more mixed in with, uh, with, with, with broader ideologies that probably go beyond yeah. education. So what you can make people believe in terms of conspiracy theories and so on, you know, might well have something to do with their level of education. But I think the, the polarisation that 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 is happening there and happening to some extent here probably speaks to something else as well it almost seems to speak to a sort of fundamental outlook on the world and also frankly to inequalities um yeah, you know exactly. that people who feel and feel for very good reason that their voice is never heard that they're always ignored that they're powerless you know that was so much an aspect of the the brexit debate here and it was so much an aspect of um yeah of of the uh left right polarization in the US and that's a real problem um and you know absolutely not one to be solved by saying well you know the other side is just too stupid and we you know they need to be better educated so it's a it, it's a very complex thing um i yeah but i i would absolutely like to think that 
doing something uh, about disparities in education would be a part of of tackling that issue. Yeah, I think univer- uh, universal sort of education programs that is leveled out across the states rather than having the social divides might help, but also trying to undo the social divides that's been there for the very beginning of the country and when it was actually conceived. I think that would be a major step for them if they can actually look at the ways to break down those walls between, you know, the ones that have money, the ones that don't. How do we make this country a more level and inclusive playing field by Mm -hmm. universally coming up with a, a, you know, a medical care system like we have that means that everybody can be treated and everybody can have the right level of care so that there's not that same level of, you know, divide between classes. And I think if, if everyone was treated equally, I think that would start to undo a lot of this mass hysteria that we see that comes out of the US. And what we forget is that our kids nowadays, they are all watching US stuff. They're watching US media, they're watching US shows, they're being very much tied up in the US culture. And they'll, they actually know a lot more about what's going on in the US than they do about what's going on here. And that's maybe something that we as a society maybe should be keeping an eye on as we progress, because we might start to see the same problems the US has starting to arrive here and I think COVID showed us a little bit of that because it showed us some of the conspiracy theories it showed us some of the terror and we saw that with the vaccination numbers we saw that with the level of people that were getting sick the ones that wouldn't comply with the rules we were able to see that response and that's maybe something as a society we should just be a little bit aware of and be more ready to try and prevent something like that or prevent us from going down that route yeah 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 no absolutely um i I think that it it was also it was just so striking how correlated covid risk was with socioeconomic level with and with with inequality i think that was and that's one of the things that because you know since the beginning of 2020 i felt like certainly for that year and uh most of 2021 i felt like i was writing about nothing else but covid and it was it was you know an interesting time to be doing that but one of the things that uh, i always wanted to stress because this was kind of seen as a it was kind of a scientific problem and it was easy to see it as having a scientific solution we've just got to invent these vaccines you know and test them fast enough and I think it's really important that we emerge from the pandemic when we do which we haven't done yet um yeah with an understanding that that's never going to solve the problem enough if the if the roots of the problem are inequality (coughs) are socioeconomic um that you know you really have to tackle that you can't science your way out of a problem like that and i think it's so important it's fantastic that we have and amazing that we have these vaccines and i'm so grateful for it but um that's not you know that can't be seen as the 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 sort of end solution to a challenge like this yeah. yeah yeah so what are you working on now what are you excited about to share with us uh, what's this new releases that you're 
you're getting excited about and the energy starting to rise up inside you for? Well, I have a book coming out later this month, later in June, uh, which is yeah. um, called The Book of Minds, M-I-N-D-S. So not uh, think stuff you dig in the ground, but in our brain. <laughs> um, yeah. Or is it in our brain? It's, it's partly what it's talking about. And it's re- what it's really yeah. doing is asking the question, um, what kinds of minds can exist you know aside from us we know we have minds or at least we know individually we have minds we take it on trust that everyone else does too but what else is out there and more generally uh, you know there's a lot of interest now in the in animal cognition animal behavior understanding um animal minds if you want to put it that way but what i wanted to to do was to say i think it would be helpful to think of it in the framework of a space of possible minds that of all the oh, kinds okay. of minds that might exist what is that space like it's not going to be i mean people have kind of drawn crude sort of uh diagrams sometimes of what they of, of different dimensions of mind so some for example say well there's kind of experiencing there's a degree of feeling and there's intelligence sort of how good you are at doing stuff if you like yeah and um you know you, the, so those are two kind of axes two coordinates of the space of mind so we can place humans in there somewhere and we can place you know babies in there somewhere and and dogs and cats and bats and um and octopuses but actually yeah. i think the space the real space of possible minds is it has lots of different coordinates it's multi-dimensional and so what are they where are the, the things that we know about and it, it it gives a way of comparing not just us with other animals but i talk in the book about the question of do plants have minds because there is actually a serious uh, um, uh, sort of movement really within uh, plant biology from some plant biologists who absolutely assert that it is valid to think of plants as having a kind of mind. Um, yeah, some people, I, I, I mean, some, some people even believe that everything living has a kind of sentience, even if for a bacterium, it's very, very minimal. It's not nothing. Um and then there's, of course, the discussion about AI and, you know, are, will we be able to create AI minds? I, I'm confident in saying, you know, the computer I'm looking at at the moment has no mind. It's interesting mm-hmm. that we treat it sometimes as if it does. We kind of thinking, you know, why did you do that? And why are you being so awkward and slow today? But and the, we plead with it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But but I think, we, you know, we can be confident that at the moment it doesn't actually have a mind. There is nothing it is like to be my laptop at the moment but it's not at all clear that that's always going to be the case you know even for the foreseeable future that that may change so i talk about about that about to what extent you know might we be able to create minds what might they look like and i certainly want to challenge the idea that that is sometimes around that as computers get bigger and bigger and bigger um you know more and more transistors in the in their silicon circuits eventually they'll kind of say hello and they'll become conscious and they'll be like us, except that they might be malevolent, but otherwise like us. I want, you know, that's yeah. this kind of sci-fi idea. And I say it's in the book... It's a bit book, scary well, idea, yeah. It, it, yeah. And of course it is. But, but you know, again, let's excavate why, we're, why we think of it that way. You know, there's a, there's a <laughs> long tradition. That might be a lot to do with Hollywood, to be fair. <laughs> it, well, and Hollywood is picking up on older traditions. You know, you can, you can, yeah. tra- I mean, you can trace that back to, to, to Frankenstein and earlier. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but actually, I, I'm saying I think AI is kind of at the moment, there's no reason to think that it's taking a trajectory that is kind of converging towards human minds. It might be going off somewhere else entirely in this space yeah. of possible minds. So we need to understand what sort of proto minds we might be making and are they the ones we want? And if we want to make them better and if we want to give them more human-like attributes, you know, might we have to really think about how to build that in explicitly rather than just hoping that as they get cleverer, they, they become more human-like. <laughs> yeah. So it's really a way of talking about this, you know, in general about, and I talk about aliens too, what can we say, if anything, about what alien minds might be like? Um, yeah. And it's not nothing. You know, I think we have some some things to go on there. So it's really a book about that. It's about the kinds of minds that can exist and uh, what we can say about them, what this space might look like. And where are we in that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's incredible. And I I mean, I knew nothing about those kinds of things. And I've been very lucky. I know a friend of mine called Shane Helms, and he introduced me to the idea of minds outside of humans. Um because he did a podcast a very long time ago and he was a huge fan of it's an alien show oh dear me i've forgotten the name of it now there's a lot of them um this one's been on for a long time something about blaming it on the aliens or something like that i don't think i know that one there are there are a lot there doesn't um, any bells yeah but it, it that was the idea that you know aliens created the pyramids and, and all this kind of uh, stuff okay. he really right, opened my idea yeah. my mind to the idea that you know there could be other mindsets out there and there could be things all around me that's thinking and i'm just not on the wavelength to pick up that sort of to recognize that mind and also to know how to communicate with a set mind like that. Mm -hmm. And is a is minds meaning that we have a way to communicate with one another? And how important is that in correlation with a mind itself? So what made you want to dive into this topic and write it? Well, this this was one of those books, too, that I realized, oh, crikey, I'm going to have to write this, even though it's a huge subject. And it was it really came yeah. out of a I was asked several years ago really going back now by a, a, a science uh, magazine if I would write an article that kind of looked a little bit at attempts to open up the black box of today's AI which you know it works uh, mostly um, and uh, but we're not quite sure why it works we know what we're doing in building them but we don't quite we don't really know about the modes if you like the modes of cognition or the modes of reason or even you might even want to call it the modes of thinking that ai uses to turn an input into an output um and yeah. so you know it was a there, there was there is work on you know trying to understand that and I had started digging around in this area and I wasn't really getting anywhere because I was finding it hard to find people who were really able to engage with this in a sort of broad way. And I kind of left it sitting on the shelf um, and thought, you know, maybe one day I'll write that. But it kind of stayed in my, you know, in my mind and I, I, I um, kept sort of thinking about it and thinking about how that relates to and then actually what what happened i mean probably this was an element of it that um several years ago i had what's called a brain organoid grown from a piece of my skin um, oh, which okay. is 
basically, what it means is you 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 take a, a little biopsy from my shoulder, and so it's really kind of skin and you know the flesh from the top of your um, you know my shoulder, um, yeah. and the, those cells were transformed in a petri dish. They were transformed back to stem cells and then yeah. grown into neurons. And the neurons oh. start to organize themselves into what looks like a little tiny brain, a bit like uh, what, a, what a brain might look like in a developing embryo. Not quite like yeah. that because it's not in an embryo, but it's not just a mass of growing cells. It's actually organized in some way. And this is called a brain yeah. organoid, or some people call it a mini brain. And people had started thinking, I mean, these are used for research. And it was really interesting, you know, seeing that happen to a bit of me. Um, and uh, But people have, have started to, to, to think, well, as we get better at making these things, and if we're able to give them a blood supply, and they can get bigger, and they can be more brain-like, is there going to come a point where we have to start thinking, what's going on in there? And might there be some awareness in there? And if so, what does that mean ethically? What responsibilities have we got to it? So, you know, yeah. there's another kind of proto mind that we're actually growing and we're doing that now what what could that be like um and i think those what things medical came... implications do oh, have? Uh, well they are used for for example they allow uh people to study things that happen in brains without actually having a real brain because you obviously you can't yeah. experiment on a live human brain you can look at a dead no. one but there's not much you can find out about that so people are using them for for example the people who who did this at uh, university college london who did this to the bit of me they're using them to try to understand alzheimer's and they're looking in particular yeah. at pe they they grow these these brain organoids from people who have a genetic predisposition to early onset alzheimer's and they yeah. hope to be able to see as these mini brains grow to be able to see what might go on in them that leads to that condition so it's that that kind of, course, of thing yeah. is 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 being done um and I, I was so this was in 2019 and i was lucky enough to be invited to go to uh harvard medical school for three months as a sort of visiting researcher or visiting academic and um yeah. so i spent the summer there and it was almost as soon as I arrived at Harvard, that I suddenly realized, you know what, this, this, that article on AI that I wrote, actually, that's a book. And it's a book about not just about yeah. what's going on inside AI, it's a book about what's going on inside, inside brain organoids and animals and whatever. Yeah. And being at MI, being at Harvard was, was, was perfect because that Harvard and MIT in the Boston, Cambridge area is just a hub of people who are in that intersection between behavioral yeah. science, cognitive science, neuroscience and AI and robotics. And they're all talking to each other in a really interesting way. And so I could go, just go and talk to people. And the book sort of came out of that. That's amazing. And just to have that experience, that opportunity to do that probably was what made that come alive, If if you think on it. Well, I think it was very interesting, actually, to me, just in terms of, you know, how these things come about. I think had I been sitting at home that summer, uh, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me. But plucking no. me and my family out and plonking us down in Boston, you know, for us to sort of start, a, you know, a new afresh for three months, uh, yeah. probably just flipped something in my brain enough that I realised this is what I need to do with those ideas. Yeah, exactly. And I think... That's that's incredible. It's an incredible experience. And that's why I actually encourage a lot of writers to go to new places just to retreat almost so that 
you can go and sometimes it will shake loose a book that people might have just tossed aside and said, oh, no, that'll never happen or, oh, I can't write it. Because you never know where going somewhere new can actually bring something forth and help complete something that might be missing. Whether it's inspiration, whether it's the people around you, whether it's the atmosphere. Sometimes travel can be a benefit to writers in, oh, in the writing absolutely. process. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this was such a you know reminder to me. And I mean, of course... You know, for the last two years, those the opportunities to do that have been so it's limited, been limited yeah. and it's been really hard just kind of, you know, sitting sometimes for weeks on end, you know, inside the home and not going beyond the front gate at the, the you know, at the beginning of the, the lockdown. Trust me, I, I know uh, that very well. Yeah. I was, I was <laughs> high risk. Do. So you can imagine for, <laughs> oh, for me, gosh. I was, I got, I didn't get put on high risk till three months into the first COVID issues. So like I was kind of just after lockdown had started and I wasn't really sure what my place was. And then they phoned me up. They were like, yeah, you're high risk. Um, so you're working from home now. And I'm like, but how do I do my job from home? And so I was in that awful position of being a learning support teacher and then having to adapt. And I just moved to Shetland. And then my husband moved up to Shetland and he lost his job opportunity because of COVID. So it was almost like we had to, to reevaluate and start from scratch. And now he drives buses and I went back to writing full time because even though COVID is is sort of moving away from being, you know, an everyday obstacle and, and government supported and things like that. I'm still in that situation where I've got to treat it for the rest of my life like I'm going to be a high risk person. But I don't just have that. I on top of it I have to be aware that I'm a sepsis risk too. So yeah, it was a huge change for me as well. So, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like for someone like you who, you know, needs to travel to to experience things and to, to learn and to speak to other really strong academic minds. Did you become very in touch with the Zoom technology? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we, you know, had to adapt to that very quickly. And in fact, uh, you know, in many ways, it was a probably a, literally a lifesaver. Um, it was fantastic yeah. to be able to do that. And I think it's it's interesting that 
in within science we realized actually we should be doing this much more we shouldn't all be going to conferences meetings all over the world there's no need for it and actually it's more inclusive in lots of ways to do it virtually or yeah. at least partly virtually so you know that's a a, a a good thing potentially that's come out of it i mean i i, I think it's interesting that um i heard i and saw a lot of fiction writers in particular saying uh, you know i've got all this time on my hands but I can't write. I, can't, I just can't do it. And, and it feels trivial anyway to be writing fiction when we're in the middle of this thing. And yeah. um, I felt very lucky as, you know, with the job that I do, that actually, you know, as I said, it was actually a source of work because as, you know, writing about science, you had to be writing about this stuff that was happening. Um, so you know, I certainly wasn't blocked by it in that way, but I did absolutely miss the opportunity to get out and visit people and visit labs and see new things and just take your mind out of this space that I was perpetually in. I think that's incredible. And it, I think it's it's really good to hear that you were having that ability to sort of be reminded of your place and to be, you know, oneself and the strength of oneself and the strength of oneself's mind. I think that's that's pretty incredible. So we're going to go into the book portion of this podcast and we're going to be talking about books that you've read um, and, you know, sharing sort of a little insight to all of the listeners out there about things that you might be reading and things that might be part of this inspiration of your life. So the first question is, what is the book that you've read most recently that stuck with you the most? Oh, most recently. Now that's a, that's a challenging one. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I, the, what, what I would say, one of the books that has stuck with me the most all along, um, but I probably read it 20, 15, 20 years ago, is Primo Levi's If This Is a Man. Um, and I, oh, okay. I mentioned that because, as I'm sure a lot of people will know, Primo Levi trained as a chemist. Um, his probably his most, as well as if this is a man, uh, his most famous book is The Periodic Table, which is probably the most beautiful, elegant book ever written, sort of about chemistry. But it's really about Primo Levi's his little um, incidents in his life. Um, he, he, he writes so gorgeously. But I think if this is a man... His the experience the account of his experiences in Nazi concentration camp as a, an yeah. Italian Jew is one of the defining works of the twentieth century, um, and it uh, I, I I know of nothing else that speaks to that unthinkable experience in a way that is in some ways sort of not not exactly dispassionate but it's very calm it's very measured and at the same time utterly devastating in what it tells yeah. us about that experience and uh yeah i i you know i i i feel that that if if there was a list of essential books that everyone should read then i would absolutely put that on the list even above primo levi's periodic table though you should read that as well but if this is a man yeah. it's one of the essential actually essential documents of the 20th century i the next question is if you had infinite time and you could just sit and read and enjoy what you're reading, who would you pick and why? 
Hmm. Okay. Um, at the moment, uh, I, I would the, the the problem I have is that I review a lot of books, um, and I'm reviewing several at the moment, and I always feel I've got to be getting on with them. And I'm quite a slow reader when I'm reviewing because I want to read carefully enough to do the book justice and uh savor it yeah yeah and so what that means is that reading stuff for pleasure is actually quite hard particularly if it's long and so i bought you know hillary mantel's mirror and the light um probably two probably at the start of the pandemic um and yeah. i'd read the previous two uh in the thomas cromwell series and i still am only on sort of page 70 or 80 of this massive great book so if i <laughs> had the time you know if i had and it's 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 so gorgeous so i you know i would love the time just to just to be able to read that but beyond that i mean there are just so so many books um you know i always tell myself I'd, I'd love to have more time to read you know i need to read all of dickens in a lifetime but is it possible to do that they're so they're so long they're so wonderful but they're so long and there are so many of them and uh, so I, I think i'd certainly like to get you know more um uh get that further would be a challenge dickens. for the year if you wanted to do a really hard readers challenge for yourself you say, right, okay, January 1st, every day I'm going to read X amount of pages of a Dickens novel and then try and stick to it and see how many Dickens you could actually get done in a year. I, I, could, I mean, I suppose my fear if I did that was that it would become a chore. It would become something I would have to do yeah. and it would take the enjoyment out of it. Um, but I don't know, you know, how I mean, I've got to be realistic because the pile, I mean, you can sort of see behind me really, the pile of books yep. that I need to read you know, is always going to be so much bigger than the pile that I can physically manage to to do. And there's obviously lots of reading I need to do for my own writing as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I know the it, feeling. I've tired uh, of Pisa next to my bed that could kill us one night if it fell over. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, and these these are just the, the classics that I talk about. There are so many great contemporary writers i mean i in a way i wish i that people would write um uh books like claire keegan's small things like these um yeah. where you know because you can read even i can read that in two days um and it's exquisite yeah. and uh, uh, uh so yeah i wish there were more like that but um i'm very glad when they come along yeah oh no i i totally understand that um because some of the books that i love and, and i admire they're just so long um <laughs> But I, I, was th I was just thinking there about how you were speaking about sort of anxieties and missing your writing. Um, if you ever get a chance, if you ever look into Catherine Cookson, she wrote fantastically about the anxiety within the common class. So all of her novels, no matter what time period she wrote in, was very much specifically targeting the, the angst and the the sort of weight of that social class at that time okay right. and there was a cleverness to what she wrote and i think if you're ever kind of wanting to dive deeper into that and maybe deeper into a way how she really has a really good knack for showing how other minds maybe works and thinks mm -hmm. she should be one that you might check out and just see what you could pick up from it um because she does really short ones really short books right and then she does that sort of bigger ones that's good that i like more, that much yeah. more detail yeah right. but she's a very famous british um writer 
she was made a dame by the queen and the queen was a huge fan of hers but she's sort of being forgotten now as the generation that read her is is slowly going away and mm. slowly passing away so mm-hmm. um maybe you'll find something in there that that uh might help and might um might give you a little bit more insight because she herself was dyslexic and dealt uh, with okay. mental health issues and anxieties and i think she really encapsulates a lot of the anxieties that's plagued society since the very beginning right okay interesting thank you sorry i have a tendency to recommend books on this show so people end up walking away with like five (laughs) or six at least so you know if feel free (laughs) uh to ignore if need be um is there an author past and present who influenced you inspired you and made you excited about books and if so why uh in, in i mean you know there are so many authors who uh, have made me excited about books and who i love to read and who i always look forward to reading i mean you know I, I, everything kazuo ishiguro writes i will read because there's he always does something extraordinary um but uh in terms of the uh the writing that i do if i'm thinking of people sort of writing a, you know close to the genres that i write in and about science in particular there are a couple of um, i mean i've i've always uh enjoyed like so many other people have always enjoyed the way oliver sacks right um you know he just has such a beautiful way of of putting things so um pretty much anything by by oliver i'll uh, I'll gladly read one of my favorite books about science is uh richard holmes the age of wonder which is a uh it's a look at the i mean richard is a um a biographer really and particularly biography of the romantic poet uh, but he's, yeah. um, he he became interested in that early 19th century period when the those guys, when um, uh, uh, Shelley and particularly Coleridge were talking to scientists, were talking to people like Humphrey Davy. Um, and there was this sense at that time that science, scientists were opening up a world of wonders, an astonishing world. He starts yeah. with the voyage of Joseph Banks. Um, so in the late 18th century, uh, you know, finding literally new worlds going around uh, in, in his sea voyages. And, uh, and then he looks particularly at people like uh, Davy and... Uh, and their interactions with the, with poets, but he he, I mean, for one thing, it's it's a beautifully written book, um, and it's a lovely way of looking at how those worlds came together. Um, yeah, and it also uh, it ends with something that is almost a manifest a manifesto to me now, because Richard talks about how we need. I, it almost literally his words are broader, more generous ways of thinking and writing about science getting rid of the old boundaries of science against religion, science against the arts. Um, and that is something I yeah. so totally subscribe to that I, I'm very glad that Richard put it down in such an elegant way. Yeah, no, I think that's, that is really cool. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, and I love those, those choices. So when you go to a bookstore when we could go to bookstores <laughs> or if we were sho- you know shopping online on an online bookstore what where would you say that you wander to what genre would you say you wander to why i um 
probably <laughs> probably tend not to go to the science books. I try to resist that tendency to say, "Am I on the shelves?" Yeah. <laughs> probably best not for me to ask that because often often uh, the answer is no. But uh, I. I if I'm browsing, then I probably browse through, and, we, and actually we've got some really good bookshops around where I am in, in South East London that are very good yeah. for browsing. And, the you know, the best shops do almost do the job for you. They find the interesting new stuff and set it out for you. And what tends to draw me then is, um, is contemporary fiction. Um yeah. Uh, and it's often books that I will have maybe, you know, just heard about, but um, don't really know much more about them. I think that's probably how I sort of claim uh, came to read uh, Claire Keegan's book, um, because I'd seen good reviews about it, but it was just intrigued by uh, by what that was about. Um, yeah. I t- what, one thing what I, I found just recently uh, that, uh, that I had a sort of spell, and I'm probably still in it in some ways, of wanting to read books there seemed to be a, a whole bunch of um, uh, younger female writers who were writing short stories that were weird. And I just loved the way they were doing things. Um, so <laughs> Daisy Johnson, for example, is uh, was was writing um, stuff like that. And um, uh, and uh, oh, I'm trying to uh, I'm struggling to remember her full name now, but Carmen Machado um, and um, uh, Suzanne Schwaber. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, sorry. VH swap. No, I should. I should. I mean, you'll you'll um be able to uh edit this in, but um uh it's uh let me just let me let me just get the the proper name because I I should do, but it's too long since I read it. Um, let me. Uh... Don't worry. I always forget the authors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I, I remember the titles, but I could never forget. Oh, the okay, authors. here we go. So it's yeah, the, um, uh, S- S- Samantha Schweblin. Um, oh right, okay. And uh, she um, is a. Um, she, originally, she writes in Spanish, and it was this was, uh, and so her books yeah. translated. A mouthful, mouthful of birds was the one that uh, I first came across. Uh, uh, of hers and it was it's it's full of uh uh short stories that are just really strange and striking um so yeah. uh, and uh yes carmen maria machado as well uh had some oh, okay. uh, had a collection that was really striking called her body and other parties um so yeah so it, i guess that's by way of saying i think to my mind some of the most interesting writing and fiction uh, seems to be coming from um, young female writers who are writing in a very strange, weird. I mean, there is you know this genre of weird, and uh, and that's yeah. very much what they're doing. And um, I, I so I found that very appealing. I I do love how you 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 say weird, <laughs> like that's the best description you could of it. I I just I find that so. Um... It kind of tickles my sense of humor. You, you know, I know it is weird and it is strange, but it's. I just love the fact that that's the term you've, you've, you've chosen. Uh, well, it's, um, it's almost, a, it's, I mean, it is used now. That I mean, I don't know whether those uh, writers would be quite classified in that, but the new weird really is is yeah. kind of, um, you know, uh, China Mirville is, uh, is another one who writes uh, yeah. in that genre and his stuff is fantastic too. Yeah, no, no, I totally, totally agree with you. 
Has there ever been a book that you've picked up and you've wondered, why did I start reading this? There have been one or two books that I didn't finish. Uh, normally, I'm I'm quite mm -hmm. a kind of conscientious reader in the sense that if I've started, I feel like I ought to finish. But there have been one or two yeah. that I haven't. Um, should I should I name them? Is that terrible to, to say? No, what no, they you were? can name them if you want or not. It's up to you. I I've named ones that, like, I got caught by Fifty Shades of Grey and. Uh, wasn't what I thought I was picking up and and right. it just wasn't my cup of tea so I I, I donated it to somebody oh very yeah well very <laughs> you know, wise it, it caught me by surprise and it I should read blurbs and I know I should read blurbs but there's a lot of times where uh I get given a book and I don't read the blurb and I just start reading it and, right and I get yeah. caught out that way yeah, well, I mean, one that, that that happened to that, you know, I don't feel too bad because this book did so well and so many people love it, is um, Birdsong by Sebastian Folks. Um, okay. I do feel bad about that because then I later on, I found myself on a quiz team with Sebastian uh, at a at a pen um, uh, quiz night. And Sebastian was so lovely. And I just, I, I never actually yeah. mentioned that I didn't finish Birdsong. Um, and people have said to me, uh, you you got to you got to persevere because it it really you know gets so wonderful and so I know that I ought to and one day I will go back to it. Um, so course, I'm not yeah. going to judge it on that experience alone. But for you know it it was one that I just thought actually you know what this the 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 protagonist in this is irritating me so much that I'm just going to stop. Um, so who knows I'll I'll get there one day. I know that feeling. No, there's there's often books that I pick up and I think. Oh, Crystal, what did you do thinking mm. about this? <laughs> um, so I've, I've learned uh, the lessons of that, and I am going to not repeat that, <laughs> I <laughs> hope. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I actually fully understand that. Let, moving into the writing uh, portion of the podcast, the sort of, you know, this is where a lot of young writers, a lot of young um, academics will, will probably tune in just to check this out. But what draws you to the areas of science and to the, the material that you've you've written about? What what made you excited to get into writing about science and all these different things? Well, I I, I guess um, I mean I trained as I say as a scientist first as a chemist and then as a physicist and I'd always sort of been channeled really towards scientific subjects at school so in a in a way you know I was already in science um yeah. when I I I I will only I hope this is uh, true to say I will only write a book about a particular topic if I feel I have something to say about it I yeah, won't, you know, be, um, I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's good that you say, of course, because I think that sometimes what happens, what does happen in science writing is that people think, and, you know, this is a perfectly valid way to approach it as well, that people might think this is a really interesting area. There's lots of good stuff happening here. I want to tell people about it. So I'm going to, you know, popularize it and just mm. explain it to them. And I think that's a very valid yeah. reason for writing a book. But it, for me, that's not enough. Um or at least that's not the motivation. I shouldn't say it's not enough. It's not the motivation. I will only, it's only when I think, actually, yes, I think I have something to say about this that I hope is worth saying, I hope is interesting, but I want to say it. It's then that I'll write 
uh, about it. And that's, you know, that's what I talked about with the Book of Minds, that I suddenly realized actually there is a way of talking about this. It's 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 what happened with uh, my book in, on quantum mechanics, Beyond Weird, which, you know, I sort of felt yeah. like there's there's loads of popular science books about quantum mechanics do we really need another one but actually there's something i think needs saying about quantum mechanics that i haven't said in other books and so you know that's that's what i'm going to try and do and i guess i i sort of feel like that you know if i'm asked for advice about writing science books that's certainly the way i would uh uh put it across that you need to know what it is you want to say um, or the, or at least that you, you need to feel that you have something to say. Maybe the experience yeah. of writing the book and researching the book will clarify what it is that you want to say. That's often what I've found. But nevertheless, you know, if there isn't something, if you're just kind of explaining it but without anything really to say about it um then, you know, maybe think twice about whether this is something you really want to go for. Exactly. And I think it's important for every writer to be writing something that cannot, you can't live without telling and you can't live without expressing. So I think that's a really, a really good answer, to be honest. And I think it's a very important answer to have. What, what are your dreams for your novels? What, um, what things do you look forward to the most in writing? And where do you, where would you like to see your, your novels end up? Um, I guess, uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't give it so much thought about where the book is going to end up, what what is going to happen to it after I've written it. Because as I you know, I've just said that if, if it's something that I feel I just want to and really need to say, that's the, the motivation. And all I can hope for in doing that is that maybe some other it'll resonate with some other people that some other people will 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 get something out of that but that of course that's not something i can control all i can do is to try to express that you know as clearly uh, as as i can and hope that it works but in a sense i i was taught a good lesson about about that quite early on in writing i think it was maybe the fifth book or something that i wrote called critical mass which was about the use of ideas from physics to try to understand social systems and there was a point when i'd almost finished the drafting that book where i kind of thought why am i doing this no who's going to want to know about the, all this stuff you know it's i'm i'm just fooling myself but nevertheless i kind of think it's interesting and so you know i'm i'm going to do it um and then that was the book that won a big science book award and lots of people bought it's probably sold better than any other book that i've written uh, you know i don't kind of feel it's the best thing i've ever written but it seemed to work it seemed to you know to, to do something that people found useful and so that sort of taught me to, you know, not heed that voice. And I, I'm, I think all writers have that voice at some point in what they're yeah. doing that says, this is rubbish. You're wasting your time. Forget it. Um, and yeah, so I've got used to and I'm kind of at that stage at the moment with the, the book of minds. Um, but, uh, I've, you know, I'm, I know well enough that I have to not heed that voice um yeah. to just trust my instincts in having you know if it was if it was going to be a waste of time that should be evident very early on 
if you've got this yeah. far, it probably isn't. It's just that you get to that stage. And also, you know, don't have expectations for what's going to happen to the book. I expected that one to, you know, be a small seller. And it became, in my relative terms, you know, a big seller. Um, a big, yeah, and, and there's big no... Expert. There's no way I could have influenced that or tried to write. If I tried to write it to make it a big seller, it probably wouldn't have been as good a book. So, yeah, I sort of realized, you know, let go of that. Let go of expectations and just do what you want to do with this book. It's the best, best advice I've heard, because to be honest with you, you can't make a book succeed no. any other way than writing it as true to how you feel it or hear that voice. And I think that's probably... The biggest and nicest bit of advice that any writer could hear and anybody who wishes to tell their story to the world. So what's been the biggest trial that you've had to overcome on your journey as an author? I would guess it's the one that I'm still struggling with and probably always will do, that having come out of a background of science... There is always looking over my shoulder, you know, probably my PhD supervisor, to be honest, or, you know, <laughs> what he represents, the scientific community yeah. saying, actually, you know, what you've just written isn't technically correct. You've got to spell out, you know, a little yep. caveat or put in a footnote or say more to get it exact. And um, and you have to put in all these other things that were also done that are also relevant. And that's a, that's something I really struggle with, knowing that for the audience that I'm writing for, I have to let go of that. I have to let go of the, um, you know, the, the sort of scientist in me wanting to be exhaustive and want and probably exhausting and wanting to, you know, put in all the caveats. You have to find a way in convey, in talking about science that's good enough. Um, and there's probably always yeah. going to be someone who's going to nitpick and say, actually, that's not technically correct. Um, you know, but but, you know, uh, recognizing that we can all make mistakes and sometimes you might write things that are just wrong and then, you know, you want to correct them. But recognizing that beyond that, you have to recognize, you know, you just have to let go of of that you know, scientific sort of way of trying to convey things with all the pros and cons and, and so on, because people aren't going to, you, you, all you can hope to do is get the gist across. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, as I say, that's still something, you know, that I, I see myself in my writing, I struggle with that. I try to be maybe too exhaustive and, you know, not recognize that, okay, this is enough. This is good enough to get across my point. I think a lot of authors have that. Um, it doesn't matter what genre you're in or what what you're writing. You always feel like you're not competing, you know, or or putting in that detail or putting in that one thing that is going to make it a big blockbuster. And we live under this horrible, crushing pressure that we have to make money for the publishers every time we put something out. And I think there was a, a writer that said it best. Writers have to remember that we are the voices of freedom and we are free to write what we feel and believe. And that has got to be the most important thing. I think I've slightly um, changed it, but that statement came from Ursula Le Guin, 
who wrote The Dispossessed. And she was a real big believer in, she wrote science fiction, but she was a really big believer in writers had to remember that they were the voices of people. We were the voices of the world and we couldn't we could not forget that and we couldn't let publishing control these voices and and manipulate the voices to suit what what the market said or or what a market is yeah yeah and well i'm glad you mentioned her ursula le guin is she features quite a lot in my book of modern myths i've never seen anything that she's written that i didn't profoundly agree with i think everything she writes is full of wisdom so thank you for that one and all you do, you know, I'm I'm not just a a romance reader or a sports romance <laughs> writer. I am sadly very well educated sometimes in in books um, because obviously my condition made it impossible for other things. So books kind of had to become my best friends in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. So, do you live um, in your writing kind of life? Is it? Do you go from the aha? I have the next subject from moment to moment or do you kind of like schedule out your year of I'm going to write this for this part of the year and then the next part of the year I'm going to write that or do you not go with a schedule at all it's a mixture actually it is a juggling act because um you know as you'll know as any writer will know um writing books isn't a lucrative thing unless you're you know one of the tiny handful of people yeah exactly so you know the books don't pay the bills i mean frankly it's the i i also i sort of split my time probably about 50/50 between writing books and doing journalism mostly yeah. science journalism and it's really the journalism that subsidizes the books so i have to be constantly juggling to you know be uh making sure that i've got enough um articles you know in the pipeline um and you know pitching new ones and so on while not filling up all my time doing that and leaving enough for the books. So that's kind of ha- how it works, um, that I try to, you know, it, it, it is just juggling to make sure that I'm, I'm leaving enough time to actually get the books done as well. Um, but that's always changing, you know, depending on how much is, is on my plate at any moment. Well, I must admit, I, uh, I will be emailing you later because I have a science um sort of topic that I I would have loved to have seen explored by a journalist but will not be explored unless somebody like me actually brings it up because Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time um, I I understand a lot of what stem cells does and I understand a lot of science now more than I did when I was a teenager um, because I, I had to study my own condition I had to become a master of my own condition in order to have the full range movement I have and to be able to live as well as I do and so I, I will I'll I'll talk to you after the show about that because I think there's a topic that is not being covered by science writing and I think maybe you could be the voice that changes that and uh could really make a difference well you never let, know let me know let me know by all means yeah yeah so how how um what is the biggest strengths that you have when it comes to writing these these sort of books and and putting putting your life sort of on hold to write these sort of books? Sorry, what is the biggest strain? Uh oh, so what you mean? What so what is hardest 
in doing it. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah. What's, the, what's the things like uh, that you maybe give up or what's the biggest pressures that you feel when it comes to writing these sort of things? I, to, to be honest, well, I mean, it's a good question. I guess I feel actually to be able to do what I do and to be able to you know, make a good enough living to be able to do it, I feel tremendously privileged to be able to do that and very very lucky to be able to do that because you know for most writers I know it's very hard and they have to you know have other jobs which you know I haven't really had to do so actually to be honest I don't really feel um that way it is you know it it does mean a lot of juggling in terms of you know just being a a freelancer being self-employed has its challenges but i feel incredibly lucky to be able to choose subjects you know myself and then just to research them and write them and to sometimes be able to go to places and talk to people about them um so aside from you know the inevitable challenges of being a freelancer um i just feel very lucky to be able to do that i don't know if that's exactly what you were expecting but i do feel it's it's... a great answer because it it gives us insight into your life it gives us insight into how you know your experiences are and what how you how you're living and that's what a lot of listeners want to know and it's because they feel like they're getting to know you and it's it's breaking down some of those walls and some of those barriers. So it's a, it's no, it's a really good answer. So to finish off our our podcast, uh, we're going into the life portion with a little bit of a game at the end. But for now, let's focus a bit on your life. What's the first thing you, that you do when you need to de-stress from editing, from writing, from researching, having to pitch new stories? What is it that you do to go and de-stress? Play the piano. That's that the, was not yeah. an answer I was expecting. <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> you there it totally is. threw me on that one. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I go read. Oh, right. No, no, no. I need something else entirely and to engage a different part of my brain, and that—that that is uh, what does it. Yeah. Well, that's great because uh, some people they have to be with nature some people you know they uh they have to go and do something else that's creative to almost slow them down to that point where they they can relax so that's that's really good and it's it's really good for um you know your mobility and your fine motor skills so that's that's really cool what hobbies do you enjoy and what ones do you wish you could explore more if you had the time I well, I mean, I enjoy music of all sorts. So I'm primarily a piano player. I play guitar and saxophone and accordion. You know, so I love just making music in uh, whatever ways uh, possible. Um, I mean, it is true that I I love getting outside and being able to 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 walk. And I wish I could do more of that. I uh, until several years ago, I really enjoyed playing football. And I just got to the stage where I started breaking bones. I broke my leg and then that healed and then I broke my wrist and that healed. And I figured, actually, I I think nature is telling me it's time to hang up my boots. I'm getting on. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, So now I've um, taken up when I was young, I used to play badminton was my sport. And now I've taken that up again. And it's great. It's lovely. So I I love that. I yeah, I used to play that with my dad, and I I adored those times on the courts. I really did. Right. Um, 
I just find it really relaxing. And it's safer than horse riding. So I bet, yes. Safer than football as well, so far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad's an expert with that. He ripped countless muscles. He actually ripped his hamstring. So he said he had a bruise Oof. from his, his, his lower back all the way to his toes. And I thought, ow, and you still went back and played football? Are you crazy? Um, So, yeah, I I never understood that. Um, But it's what he loved at the time. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) What would be the one thing, if there was anything in the world, that you could do for a day, like anything in the world, like an astronaut, you could be a gummy worm, what... What would you be for one day if you could be absolutely anything and why? It's not uh, an my, easy one, that one, no, is it? My, my, <laughs> my first inclination was to say uh, concert pianist, which I know I never will be. But I actually then thought, well, that's actually a terrifying experience. I mean, I you know, no yeah. uh, concert pianist and, uh, and know how stressful that is. I think what I really meant by that is to have that ability, but not to have to perform in front of a crowd full of people, to just be able to, 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 to play. Um, so... It would be it would probably be something to do with with music. I mean, that's actually my yeah. um, alternative life, really. You know, the 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 other life that I never le- led was uh, as a musician of some kind, and I don't quite know of what kind. And uh, if 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 that meant if if by by wishing I had the ability as well as the desire, that would be wonderful. I highly recommend if you, if you love music like that, there's the folk festival in Shetland that you should try uh, to attend that. sometime. I, I because would love it that. is it's truly an amazing experience. But if you go up any time during the winter, and you go to this little pub, um, and I'll you know it's it's a little pub just up a lane. They have live music in there every night and you've got accordion players and you've got fiddles and you've got guitarists and they all get together and they just have a jam session. Mm. Just, just, Mm. they go with it and, you know, the music isn't written down. They just hop on in and they just go for it. And that is probably every musician's dream, just to experience that and to have that moment of, fun yeah and to enjoy it so i i mean i recommend that um that's always a good one that sounds fantastic i myself have idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis and that makes me slow down and appreciate the day what makes you smell the roses what makes you slow down and appreciate the day I wonder whether it's actually being I, I, I think travel is good for that. It's being somewhere unfamiliar. What yeah. immediately comes to mind is being somewhere Mediterranean. Maybe that's because it, it's been so impossible uh for, for so long. But um yeah, nice and warm. <laughs> I think some I think the warmth, yeah, and and the just the, the sort of ambience um is 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 so different there. You know, living in London uh, you just get used to being fast um so yeah i think you know take me out and plonk me somewhere on the portuguese coast or 
you know, something like that somewhere in Italy, um, that would that would do me. That would make me slow down and notice much more. So where's your favorite place during the day to go and curl up and read? Is it the garden, a conservatory? Do you go to a cafe? Is there a reader's nook that you like to go to? Where is your place to just go and curl up? I mean, I usually end up doing it late at night, um, sort of on the sofa downstairs, but that's that's probably not the ideal. I think now, you know, at this time of year, the sun is actually shining outside, and I think there are we're lucky enough to have a garden here. There is a, a very nice hammock in the garden, and that would be that you've you've reminded me actually crystal that that's what i need to do that's where i need to go um and that would probably make me read much more in a much more focused way than being inside with all the other distractions yeah sometimes you just need somebody to just give you a nudge of of a reminder and make things special so we're on the fun part of the show this is the part that most authors dread and all the readers get excited about because they love to hear what weird and strange answers we're going to come up with. So I gave you a, a slight theme for the word game. Now, you can either do word association or you can tie it to a book, whether it's a memory of a book or a book you've read or something that sort of brings you to that time. And that's kind of how this game works. So are you ready? Okay, I'll go for books, probably. Yeah, let's give it a go. Okay, so your first word is Dettol. Dettol. Oh, God. Um, Why does that come up? Okay, I've just got to go with it, haven't I? The Wasp Factory, Ian Banks. I like that. It must be the the sterile smell of antibiotic swallow. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness knows. I like that. What about lemons? Oh, yeah, lemons. Oh, now they're, yeah. Okay. Lemons. God, where's it going to go? Couldn't think too much about this. Just the first one that comes to your mind. Yeah, lemons. Um... I mean, it's probably just because it's in my mind um, the, of, of Premier Levy's periodic table. Um, but that's, I suspect that's just because that was what was what was there earlier. I think le- lemons is going to go somewhere else. Lemons, <laughs> lemons is kind of going towards something like something by Angela Carter. Why is that? Oh, OK. Don't, don't quite know which one. She's the author. Oh, you can pick the author. The author is fine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what about oranges? <laughs> okay, that's easier because Im- immediately I'm on the right route. And so that takes me to Jeanette Winterson. Ah, okay. We're getting on a roll now. Spinning globes. Spinning globes. Okay, that's, um, oh, that's that book by Peter Carey. Now, what was it about? It was, um, I'm going to have to look it up. It, it was uh, <laughs> of a an automaton, a glass automaton. Um, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, let's get, let, I've got I've to get the uh, the book. It was too long ago since I, since I read it. Um, the Chemistry of Tears, that's it. Ah, okay. 
<laughs> okay, next one is chalk. Chalk. Yeah, okay. That's I mean there there there's a logical uh uh connection here because that is stoner by what was the author's name? John, do you know the book I mean? Nope. <laughs> he's a, um let me let me look that up because he's a it's, it's obviously because he's a um kind of lecturer at a, an American university. Um uh by yeah, John Williams, John Edward Williams. Yeah, Stoner by John Williams. <laughs> and your last one is marker pens. Uh, okay, that immediately is, I think, maybe Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. And the I reason like that. for the reason for that is that I immediately think of Kurt Vonnegut's graphs of storylines. Um, if oh, you've okay. If you've never seen the video of him talking about his storyline plots, then you should find it on YouTube. It's fantastic. I uh, definitely will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. You've you've survived the word <laughs> game. Phew. You know, it makes some people sweat. I have heard that it made some people uh, sit on edge. But I actually gave you quite a a classroom theme uh-huh. for with all the words, yeah. like different smells and things that you would have in a classroom. Right. Um, just because when I looked you up, I got the very lecturery English Oxford kind of feeling, which is, I don't know why, but that's <laughs> where my mind went. Um, and that's where the word game words came from. But it's Brilliant. been such a deep honor to have you on today. It really has. And I think the listeners will have learned so much from you. And we would love to invite you back. So next time you've got a book coming out, please feel free to email me and we'll get you booked in. You can come back and share share more with us about, you know, the book and about what you've been getting up to. Because I know the, re- the listeners will be excited to hear from you and excited to hear you, how your journey is going. Thank you so much, Crystal. It's been lovely talking to you too. It's been a great pleasure. It's been a, an absolute honour. So Stand by next week, guys, because we have a literacy agent on the show, and he's going to be explaining to us what life's like as a literacy agent. So stand by for that, and I'll see you all again next week.